Father in heaven, thank you so much for the prayers lifted up. Thank you for this time of worship. Now, as we, uh, as we approach your word, I pray that we would um, bow ourselves beneath you and under your word, that we would be like those that you esteem who tremble at your word. And um, I pray what the Lord Jesus prayed, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, you probably recognize that the way that we ordinarily teach is we teach through books of the Bible. And we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we go to the last chapter and the last verse. And in so doing that, we cover a lot of things. We cover things that are really, really exciting, and we cover some things that are not quite as exciting necessarily, and we cover some things that are easy to receive and understand, and we cover some things that are maybe not so easy to understand and not, not quite as easy to receive. Um, but I, I agree wholeheartedly with A.W. Tozier, who said the whole Bible makes a whole Christian, and so we need all of it. Um, you know, I think where people only hear three messages kind of recycled through more or less, there's, there's, there's a stunting of the growth that we're to have in Christ. I was visiting with someone recently and, and from, from another country, um, and he said, uh, he said their church, they, have, they, they cycle in four pastors, and they preach one week, and then somebody from outside the church, somebody else comes in. They're like four-week rotation. I said, really, why did they do that? He said, because the pastors say the same thing every time. <laughs> <laughs> and so they want some other people to come in, so they get four messages, basically, and they cycle through them, apparently. Um, so it's good for us to get all that the Bible says. And, uh, you know, one thing that I was thinking about uh, as we approached last week's passage, this week, next week, and the following, and other places in First Timothy, is that God's church, the church of Christ, needs life, and it also needs structure, it needs life and good order. It needs the life and energy of the Spirit, and it also needs the structure and order, and um, I guess structure and order, maybe I'll just leave it at that, according to God's design and in his word. A church that has all kinds of structure, structure up the wazoo, but no life, is like a corpse laying on the ground, right? It's, it's all there. It's not doing anything. It's not moving. There's a lot of structure, but it's dead. On the other hand, a church that has lots of life without structure is kind of like a jellyfish floating around in the ocean, just being carried wherever the current takes it. We need both life and structure. 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, they're called the pastoral epistles uh, often. They give, um, they give a lot of structure. They don't only give structure, but they give, give a lot of structure of, according to God's good design for the church. So last week's text addressed women in a pretty clear and unambiguous way. And it, and it, it says that God forbids women to do certain things, namely teach and exercise authority in the church. As we move into this week's passage, it becomes clear that last week's text and this week's text go together hand in glove. Today we're going to look at the office of overseer or the office of pastor or the office of elder. It's, I think those three words are used somewhat interchangeably, slightly different meanings, but they're all used to describe the same, 
the same office in the church. And as we look at this, it's going to become clear that this role is reserved for qualified men. And so what God forbids women to do is to serve, at least this is my understanding, is to serve or function in the role of pastor or elder or overseer in the church. Teaching doctrine and exercising authority is the purview of the pastor, of the pastor or elder or overseer or plurality, multiple of them in the church. Now, without revisiting last week's message or last week's text entirely, I just want to say by way of reminder that the differing roles that God has designed for men and women in the home and in the church, these are not roles that God gave to them as a result of the fall. It's not because Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned and then God said, okay, now from now on, here are the roles for men and women. This has been God's design from the very beginning. It's been God's good and wise and beautiful design from the, from the very beginning. I realize that this last week's pa- passage and even some of what's gonna be said today might be unpopular in our culture, Okay. It shouldn't be in the church. Unfortunately, it is in the church as well in some regard, but it's certainly unpopular in the culture, but Jesus prepared us for being out of step with the world, amen? And so God calls men to certain things and God calls women to certain things. He calls men to take sacrificial, responsible leadership in the home and in the church. And he calls women, God calls women to respond to that leadership with a glad and gentle submission, which Peter says is very precious in God's sight. Now, although our passage this morning seems like it's addressing men directly, and it is, it's certainly addressing all of us as the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ And to the degree that we seek to align ourselves to God's good design and his order, to that degree, whether it's us personally or our homes or the church, to that degree, we will walk in the well-worn paths of God's mercy. We will bask underneath the waterfalls of God's rich grace. All of God's word is good for us. All of it is aimed at equipping us for every good work. This is what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, verses 16 and 17, when he said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The man of God here speaking generally, anthropos of humanity, of human beings, of men, women, children in Christ. So it's all good for us. So last week's passage, good for us. This week's passage, good for us. Next week's passage, good for us. Three weeks from now, if we're opening the Bible and teaching out of it, it's good for us. It's all good for us. This week, we're going to talk about the governmental structure of the church, or at least part of it, this week and next week. And so... Before I jump into the passage, I just want to say something to all the men very directly here. Men, though God may not ever call you to be a pastor or an elder or an overseer, you should strive 
to grow in all of the qualities laid out, all of the qualifications laid out. You should strive to grow in these things. Amen? For the well-being of your family and for the well-being of the church. You are called to take the lead, to take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of your family, whether you have a family now or you are looking to the future when you have a family when you're married and have children. You are called to take leadership and responsibility. And listen, you will be held accountable for it. How do I know that? Who, who sinned first? Adam or Eve? It was Eve, right? We heard that last week. She was the one, one that was deceived and sinned and then she gave to Adam and he sinned as well. Who did God want to talk to when he came into the garden? Adam. He called out for Adam. He wanted to visit with Adam about what happened under his watch. Men, we will be held accountable for how we lead, how we take responsibility for those God has given us charge over. And we should take that very seriously. So let's jump in to our passage. In our day, there are many newly invented ways that church leaders are viewed either by the church members or by the, by the leaders themselves or both, new ways that, quite frankly, are alien to the New Testament. It's popular for church leaders today to be seen as, or the leadership team to be seen as a kind of board of directors of a corporation and the lead pastors like the CEO and they're selling a product. They're selling their brand of church. Some view the leader as a sort of chief communicator, someone who's really savvy and slick with words and messaging and so forth, a wordsmith, if you will. And some view the leader of a church as a sort of head coach, laying out the, uh, the game plan for how we can win in life. The problem with these views, although we can certainly learn from CEOs of companies on, on leadership skills and so forth, and we can learn from good communicators, and we can learn from coaches, no doubt. But the problem of these views is that the church is not selling a product. We're not a corporation. Furthermore, the church doesn't need to do public relations for the kingdom of God like a good communicator would, a slick speaker would do. And also, God's people don't mainly need inspirational pep talks like a coach. They need to hear from God. According to God's design and wisdom, the church needs shepherds, needs overseers, needs pastors. Needs more than that, but the church needs pastors. The church needs overseers. The church needs elders. And I do believe Paul uses these words interchangeably, pastor, elder, overseer. They have slightly different meanings, but they help fill out or describe what a pastor is, what a pastor does. Paul communicates to Titus in Titus chapter one that a church without elders, without overseers, without pastors is lacking something vital. Titus chapter one, verse five, he said, this. He said, I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes into the qualifications in the verses that follow for an elder, for a pastor. 
Here, Paul says that a church without elders is destitute of something really important. The word put, the, the phrase put, um, put in order what remains means that something is lacking. Something is wanting in those churches where there were no elders appointed. This is important for us to understand. Not only is it clearly taught in Scripture, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the head, the head of the church, is called the shepherd and overseer of our souls. One of the chief ways that Jesus cares for, cares for the church or shepherds the church is by giving the church qualified men who serve as shepherds and overseers in the church. This is one of the ways he cares for the church. So here's the big idea from this passage, all right? It's this, the work of pastor is a noble task. Paul says that very clearly, and therefore it comes with serious and noble and high qualifications. It's a noble task and comes with noble qualifications. First, let's look at the noble work of being an overseer, a pastor, an elder. Verse one, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, giving oversight to the church, he desires a noble task. Paul begins this, discuss, this discussion regarding the nobility of the work of a pastor with the announcement, the saying is trustworthy. Now Paul uses that phrase several times in First and Second Timothy and Titus, at least a handful of times, but I remember, maybe you do too, back in chapter one, Paul used this phrase before he said something really important. He said that the saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Here Paul says, what I'm about to say is totally trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. To desire or to aspire to be a pastor, an elder, an overseer is to desire a noble task. The word translated noble literally means beautiful or excellent or imminent or precious. It is a good thing. It is a really good thing. The kind of aspir- the, this kind of aspiration in a man is a precious thing to God. There are many ways the world can, there are many things I should say that the world considers noble aspirations, right? Maybe climbing the corporate ladder or being famous for this reason or that reason. God considers this to be a worthy, a worthy, a noble endeavor. Why is this such a noble calling? Well, I think it's because of the duties connected to the calling. Because of what, because of the demands laid upon someone who wants to be a pastor. Someone who is a pastor. What's demanded of a pastor? What duties are placed upon a pastor? What, according to God's word, should you expect from your pastors here at Real Life Church? And if you ever aspire to be a pastor, what duties should you expect to carry out? We could spend a lot of time here, but I just want to go through several that I thought of. First, a faithful pastor is called to feed the church healthy spiritual food. 
My greatest desire, my deepest desire is that I would be faithful to feed you well. That's what I want to do. From God's word, not my own thoughts, not my own ideas, not vague spiritual ideas and thoughts, but feed you faithfully from the word of God. Spiritual nourishment through teaching and preaching the word of God is what I have in mind. I read a sermon from John Owen based on a verse, just one verse, and he just, man, he just unpacked this very thoroughly. I read this a couple years ago, and it has helped to form my understanding of what pastoral ministry's primary responsibility is, what my primary responsibility is. It's out of Jeremiah 3.15, and God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, and here's what God says, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You are not to be filled with inspirational platitudes that make you feel good for 30 minutes. And then you go and have lunch, and you're like, what? I know I felt good during that message, but what did he talk about? They just come, right? The inspiration lasts for a bit, and then it's gone. You need more than that. You don't need to be fed flattering self-talk about how great you are. You don't need just good vibes. If good vibes are here, great, amen. If they're Holy Spirit vibes, amen. You need more than that, though. You need to be fed with knowledge. And not my girls like when I say the word vibe. Anyways, you need, you need to be fed with knowledge and understanding of sound doctrine from God's word applied to your life. That's what will transform you. That's what will feed your soul. That's what you need. That's what a pastor must do and give. God has promised shepherds after his own heart to do that very thing. God has promised this. So a faithful pastor is called to feed the church healthy spiritual food. Next, a faithful pastor is called to spiritually protect the flock that he is charged to oversee. A pastor or overseer is called to be on the lookout for danger. That's not all they do. If, a pa- if that's all a pastor does, if he's, if he's looking for, for, for wolves everywhere, that's probably an unhealthy pastor. But a pastor who's never looking out for wolves is derelict of duty, no doubt. Pastors are called to protect the church from harm, specifically spiritual harm from wolves and twisted teaching. Paul exhorts the elders in Ephesus, the church that Timothy's serving at while Paul's writing this letter. Paul exhorts the elders prior to him leaving. He has this meeting with the elders. He gathers them together. He he weeps with them. They pray with him and he says this. He says, "Pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Take care of the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, listen to what Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
Paul says, how do you know if it's a wolf? By what they say, right? They're going to be speaking twisted things. Wolves can look really nice. I heard that Arius, the guy who, who, who propagated the Arian heresy that Jesus was not fully God, I heard that he was a really nice guy. <laughs> he just turned, turned a large part of the church in the 3rd century, 4th century, away from the true gospel. So a faithful pastor is called to spiritually protect the flock. Next, a faithful pastor is called to watch over souls. Hebrews 13.7 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Charles Spurgeon said that the soul is a thing that is worth 10,000 universes or 10,000 planets. The soul is a precious thing and the pastor is called to keep watch over them. I'll speak for myself and I think I can speak for Reed and David. We take this seriously to watch over your souls. When I talk to my kids and we have to have a hard talk sometimes and there has to be correction, a hard conversation about something, I always try, I'm sure I don't always do this, but I always try to remind them, I care about your souls more than your behavior. I care about your behavior, but I care more about your souls because what you do comes from what's inside. This watching over souls is so important that pastors will give an account to it. And that's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, obey your leaders, those who are watching over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Pastors will stand before the one whose eyes are a flame of fire. And he will ask, I don't know if he'll ask this exactly, but we will give an account to, how well did you care for the souls that were entrusted to you? Next, a pastor is called to exercise oversight for the church as a whole. Not just individual souls, that's important, but also for the church as a whole. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1, He's talking to the elders. He makes it very clear. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In other words, over the entire flock. The duty is for the entire flock to be shepherded, to be cared for. The word oversight, the activity of an overseer, one who oversees gives oversight. This, this word oversight means to look after, to care for, to beware, to inspect, to make sure that the flock as a whole is doing well and in well order. A pastor will make sure that things are being done in good order that, such that it is conducive for the entire body to flourish and grow and be strengthened and built up unto our head, Jesus Christ. Of course, this would include, among other things, this would include encouragement, exhortation, even correction or rebuke when needed, and a faithful pastor will do these things humbly, with love and care, but a, a serious pastor will do these things. Next, a faithful pastor is called to lead by example. 
Again, Peter says in 1 Peter 5.3, he says that oversight is to be exercised in such a way that it's not domineering. It's not like stepping on people, you know, lording authority over them, but it, they're to exercise this oversight in such a way that they're to be examples to the flock. So the leadership of a pastor is not one of lording it over others. It's being an example. It, a, a faithful pastor ought to be able to say, whether they say it in words or, or just in action, follow me as I follow Christ. Later in this, Tim, this letter to Timothy, Paul lays out, I think, what is a pretty good list of things pastors ought to lead by example in. He says this to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Next, a faithful pastor is called to pray for the flock and especially for those who are suffering. Pastors are called to intercede for those they are caring for, often by name. By name. Praying for those they're caring for. We, I hope you know, God knows, we pray for you. And we believe that that's a responsibility we have. We pray for you by name. Often we pray for you by, by family name and individual name, even by kids' names. We pray for you, and that's what a pastor ought to be doing. But there's also to be special attention in prayer for those who are suffering. James 5, 14 and 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. A faithful pastor will pray for his flock and will have special care and attention for those who are suffering. And a faithful pastor is called to help. I, I, I just added this yesterday because I... Well, I'll just say it. A faithful pastor is called to help his people die well. I remember years ago now hearing John Piper say that. He said, my, one of my main callings as a pastor, one of the main things I see as my calling as a pastor is to help my people die well. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, 28, 29. It says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he mightily works within me. Paul is saying, my labor is to help present everyone that I minister to, everyone mature or complete or perfect in Christ. To help someone be ready to stand before Christ their king and judge when they die is a noble thing. This is indeed a noble work because of the nobility of the calling 
And because of the nobility of the calling, it has noble qualifications attached to it. So I want to just kind of buzz through some of these qualifications that are given to someone who aspires to be a pastor. Verses 2 to 7, you'll notice the word must is used four times. And I think it helps us to kind of divide these qualifications into four categories. Someone who desires to be a pastor first must have certain character qualities. Verses 2 and 3 says this, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. There are several things here revealing the sort of character or moral qualities for a pastor. And it's a must. It's not a suggestion. Paul isn't saying, you know, maybe these are good ideas. These things are a must. It's emphatic here. Not perfection, <laughs> but clear qualities in someone who's a pastor. So a pastor, let's just go through these real quick. A pastor must be above reproach. As under-shepherds of Christ, pastors must seek to live a life that would never bring sinful contempt upon the name of Jesus. Right? Next, a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Without belaboring the point, this shows that the office must be, like, like I said earlier, it's for men, right? The husband of one wife. It's not generically saying the spouse of one spouse, but the husband of one wife. Literally, a one-woman sort of man is what this is saying. The, the overseer must be a one-woman man, a man of one woman. Now, there are two extreme positions here. Okay? There's one extreme position that's just saying that a pastor can't be a polygamist. <laughs> he can't have multiple wives at one time. I think that's hard to think that Paul's making that claim here. Uh, that's obvious. The other extreme position is that a pastor can never be remarried, even if it's after the death of one of his wife, of, of a wife, one of his wives, of a of a wife. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's an extreme position too that I think is untenable from Scripture. Two more likely meanings is that a husband cannot be divorced and remarried. That's, that's what some people believe. I think that's possible. The other meaning that I hold to and I think is clear from, that I, I, I think is clear from Scripture is that a husband needs to be proven faithful to his wife. So the one he's married to. Now I think, I don't think divorce and remarriage is completely not to be considered. I mean, if, if a man is faithful for two years to his fourth wife, I think if he wants to be a pastor, that ought to be considered, right? I do. But I think what this is saying is that a man who wants to be a pastor, he's proven that he is a one-woman sort of man. He's not, a, he's not a womanizer. He's not flirtatious. He's not divorcing and remarrying uh, all the time. 
And of course, he's not a polygamist. <laughs> um, so, husband of one wife. Next, a pastor must be sober-minded, temperate, having a sound mind, sound thinking, not given to wild mood swings, not given to erratic emotions. He's, he's sober-minded. He must be self-controlled. To be self-controlled means to rule over your desires, over your passions, over the impulses of your heart, rather than having them rule over you. Remember, it's a fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Respectable. A pastor must be respectable, Paul says. This means he must be well-arranged or well or his life must be well-arranged, well-ordered. He has to have things together. Rather than having his life chaotic. The word translated respectable is the word cosmios. It comes from the word cosmos, which is the word that's translated world, relating to the, the well-ordered, harmonious, created order that God created. Our lives must be harmonious, or pastor's life must be harmonious, well-ordered, well-arranged, not chaotic and out of order. A pastor must be hospitable, literally a lover of strangers, is what that means, a lover of strangers. A pastor must have an open heart and open home to strangers. Next, a pastor must be able to teach. Of course, this is a non-negotiable, as we've already talked about. A pastor must feed his people with knowledge and understanding. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, do your best, he's writing to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Pastor can't be someone who can just talk well in front of people or someone who can keep people's attention or tell good spiritual stories or even communicate vague spiritual truths. He must be someone who can handle God's word faithfully. A pastor must not be a, must not be a drunkard or given to excess wine or addicted to wine, I think is the, the way the New American Standard uh, translate, translates it. He must not be addicted to wine. Though the Bible does not condemn drinking in the absolute sense, it universally condemns drunkenness as sin everywhere. A pastor must not be violent but gentle. The word violent here means to be a bruiser. Going around brawling and getting in fights and looking to beat people up spiritually. Like take your Bible and beat people over the head with it into submission. A pastor must not be that way. To be sure, a pastor will be called on to fight, to fight for the truth, no doubt. But a pastor must never be the kind of person that's looking for a fight. Rather, the pastor is to seek to gently instruct and entreat truth to people, even opponents. Even, even people that need to be corrected. A pastor must not be quarrelsome. He must not be contentious. And finally, a pastor must not be a lover of money. Can't be a lover of money. Paul says that by, because of the love of money, many have shipwrecked their faith. 
And I can't think of anything that brings more reproach on the name of Christ in our day than the money-hungry hustlers on Christian TV who don't even try to hide their greed. They brag about it. And unfortunately, many people don't have the discernment. They have large followings. They're at the top of the Ponzi scheme. They're really rich. Not everyone else is. The pastor must not be mastered by money, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are character qualities that a a pastor must exhibit. Next, Paul says a pastor must have his own home in order. Verses uh, four and five, he says, uh, he, an overseer, a pastor, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So a pastor or overseer must manage his house well. And the word manage here means just to to give careful attention to. Of course, this is not saying that a pastor must have the kind of kids that never need disciplined. You know, like the kind of kids that don't exist. The idea here is that a pastor's kids are not hellions and out of control and without discipline. Of course, this is not talking about discipline for a nine-month-old, although they probably need certain kind of, they need to be told no. It's not talking about, it's not talking about having a nine-month-old that's out of control, because they are, right? They're learning, barely. But it's talking about having a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old, or a 15-year-old, or an 18-year-old, out of control. For Paul, the reason is obvious. If a man's house is in shambles and disarray, how can he be expected to faithfully care for God's house? Next, Paul says a pastor must be spiritually mature. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There must be, a man who wants to be a pastor must be spiritually mature. There must be proving ground. There must be growth spiritually. Have you ever known someone who as a new believer was just pretty full of him or herself? Maybe you're like, yeah, I think that was probably me at the time. Um, Maybe you've known someone like that, pretty full of themselves, perhaps He or she had a powerful, dynamic, sudden conversion and you wouldn't dispute that they did, but all of a sudden they thought that they knew everything and and didn't need to learn anything and didn't need mentors or people to help them along and maybe this person was eager to prove how great and spiritual they are. Well, all of these things, of course, are signs of immaturity. But imagine that person being appointed to a place of authority over others. The kind of havoc that could be wreaked, the kind of abuse that those under their care could experience. Finally, Paul says this. He says a pastor must have a good reputation. Verse seven, moreover, 
he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, I think this can be misunderstood and misapplied. You can't absolutize the first part of the verse that a pastor must be well thought of by outsiders, and here's why. Paul wasn't always. (laughs) And neither was Timothy. In fact, it was in Ephesus where a great revival broke out and then Paul was the cause of a great riot. He was thought of as a troublemaker. And so was Timothy. In fact, both of them were martyred because they were troublemakers. And even Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you for my sake. The good reputation here being talked about is so that the pastor won't fall into disgrace and bring reproach upon the name of Christ because of sin. A pastor shouldn't be known, uh, known, known in, the, in the town as one who's making his way around with the ladies. It's, it's heartbreaking. Alyssa shared, has shared with me, and she's been there a few times. I've been there once, but one thing that is a plague in the church in parts of Africa is that the men, and everyone knows it, is not faithful to his wife. The pastors, excuse me, the pastors are not largely, not all of them, but largely they're not faithful to their wives. They have lots of women. Their wife is just one among many. It brings reproach to the name of Christ. A pastor must not be someone who just, who just hauls off and uses abusive language. And it's known, right? It's not saying that pastors never sin with their mouths. Of course we do. James says, whoever doesn't sin with his mouth is a perfect person. That ain't me. But a pastor must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he doesn't fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And of course, we could talk for a long time about men, even well-known, powerful men, even in the last year, last two years, who have had a very public fall, but here's the problem. People close to them, people even in their church, lots of people in their church knew what was going on. A pastor must have a good reputation with outsiders. These brothers and sisters are noble qualifications for the noble calling of pastor or overseer. And it's important to add this. All of these and this calling is to be pursued and carried out out of a reverent love for Christ. Remember what I said earlier that God said, I will appoint shepherds after my own heart. Not shepherds after the heart of the culture or after the heart of the people or after the heart of the, 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 the cultural context in which they are after my own heart. Remember when Jesus 
found Peter after his resurrection. You know, Peter just a few days before had denied him three times. And Peter, or Jesus comes to Peter and he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter answers slightly differently. He says, yes, I love you. He says, second time he says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, third time he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response to Peter is, feed my sheep. Care for my lambs. The word care, same word that speaks of shepherding. Shepherd my lambs. Feed my sheep. This is not to be done out of a desire for power or to satisfy a desire to feel significant or have self-importance. It is out of love for Christ. And my prayer is that this church will be fertile ground for godly men to be raised up to be pastors. Amen? Even young boys right now to be raised up for this noble calling. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you love us so much. You have given us your word so that we can know your will. We don't know perfectly, but we can, we can search it out and with the help of your spirit, we can discover what it is.